Hello, listeners, and welcome back for another weekly dose of MageCast, the best and worst and only podcast led by a red mage. Yes, you heard that right. MageCast is on a weekly schedule, so listener support is now more important than ever. We actually ran out of minutes on the platform I use to record episodes, TriCast, so I'll be upgrading my plan this week. So, if you would like to help MageCast be even better, then please head over to patreon.com forward slash thewellreadmage to support the show and help us continue to go on. You can also support us by taking a quick minute of your time to leave us a review on sites like iTunes and Podchaser, which really helps us in terms of visibility. I want to give a very special mention, and indeed benediction of sorts, to Gamerhead's podcast, which published their finale episode just recently. It's a bittersweet time. They had a great run, and it was a great show that I really enjoyed. I just want to wish everyone involved in that show all the best, and I look forward to what the future holds for everyone there. Don't forget we have our well-read merch up on TeePublic, link in the description, where you can snag some hot gear based on your favorite Magely online concept. There are all kinds of sales running through this end-of-the-year season, so it's the perfect time to stock up. And also, don't forget that Philosopher Raga, our next newest podcast, which features Chris from Overthinkery, a.k.a. the sometimes vaguely philosophical mage, that will be launching on November 23rd. We're actually doing a giveaway of Philosopher Raga merch in a kind of bundle, so keep an inquisitive eye out for that. Every once in a while, a conversation comes around that's not only interesting, but also important, ideologically or influentially speaking. I think that the conversation you're about to hear is just that. On this episode, I sit down to dig through mythology, ancient texts, religious literature, and the social swamp of discussion in the world today, with the ever-eloquent Jordan of Ancient Literature Dude, aka Ancient Lit Dude on Twitter. Our back and forth takes some surprising turns, and I think chiefly that we demonstrate what it means to have a conversation worth having. Enjoy. Today I am sitting down with Jordan from Ancient Literature Dude. Is it Ancient Literature or Ancient Lit Dude? How do you like that? Ancient Literature Dude on YouTube, Ancient Lit Dude on Twitter. All right. Uh, and man, uh, I am having bass voice envy hardcore right now <laughs> i just have to let you know well man uh you know it, it's just one of those things but people told me that i should make a youtube channel and i finally listened to them so i'd like to talk more about video games and things like that you know uh, bring my video game interest into my youtubing here gradually as i go on <laughs> well you got you got as they say a voice for radio so that's great so we got kind of a little more idea of who you are, Jordan. Uh, what are you playing right now? And what are some things that you might be working on as well? Uh, I'm mostly playing uh, multiplayer games with friends. I'm playing Killer Queen Black with uh, my girlfriend, Leaf Knot, and my friend, Corey, who is a streamer. And we've really been enjoying that. Uh, the player base isn't very big, but we get games when we can. We just tried out uh, Don't Starve Together today. I really enjoyed it. I play mobile games on my phone, primarily Fire Emblem Heroes and Final Fantasy Brave Exvius. Got to keep it with Final Fantasy. Nice. 
you know, I like the old school characters. I believe oh, yeah. they're about to introduce <laughs> the FF1 characters pretty soon, staying on theme here. They're going to have uh, the newly improved Warrior of Light and Garland, who is still probably my second favorite villain in the series. Probably more of a Golbez fan, ultimately. Ah. But uh, yeah, um, so that, so that's, that's most of my gaming these days. A little bit lighter than when I was a kid where I was playing, you know, 24 hours a day. But <laughs> <laughs> I think that's true for, for most of us that have reached... Uh or are older than our mid-20s, yeah, now our gaming time isn't as extreme as it was. <laughs> Unfortunately, you always like to return to those days, but alas, right? So, uh, and what are some things that you're working on? Any projects you're putting together? I'm uh, thinking about doing a Breath of Fire podcast uh, with Livnod. Uh, we've, we've talked about doing it. We've, we've approached the Breath of Fire Discord about it, and I think we're going to do it at some point, uh, it's a series that I think warrants a little bit more in-depth discussion and analysis. Uh, you, you know, mm. uh, you and I have talked about this, that uh, sometimes there's a, a need for games to be, you know, given a little bit more serious discussion out there in, in the wider world. Uh, we all enjoy playing them. We all enjoy experiencing the stories. And I think sometimes it's good to uh, talk about them, you know, dig a little more deeply. Yeah. And certainly Breath of Fire... Uh, as we were discussing, is one of those uh, series that remains kind of untapped uh, as far as the social consciousness seems to go. Um, and it has a, a rich uh, backdrop of mythology and legend and ancient ideas that I think you could really spend a lot of time talking about. So that's cool. Absolutely. So on Twitter, uh, I put out the question, favorite basic job class from Final Fantasy, the first Final Fantasy, um, which is what we're going to be talking about on this episode from 1987, developed and published by Square, famously directed by Hironobu Sakaguchi. This is episode 34, Sakaguchi's Last Stand. Uh, but on Twitter, there were a lot of people who responded, and that was real nice. What happened is I did not count up the results in time for this recording, so I will count that up, and I'll leave the results in the podcast description. So check that out to see which basic job class ended up being the most favorite. Um, but what was your favorite job class in this game? Well, first of all, I'm going to predict that it was either Red Mage or Black Mage winning the poll, because it's, it's got to be the one with the stylish hat, right? We all know everybody loves <laughs> the mages. They're cool. Uh, no, no disrespect to the white mage. The white mage is great, but uh, my favorite probably. Uh, and again, you know, no offense. I love the red mage, man. Uh, I'm all about it. <laughs> I, I told you before uh, we started recording, but uh, probably the black mage is my favorite because uh, I love the the little the blue robe and the pointy hat and the the crazy little eyes. And oh, uh, yeah. I like look. I like having access to nuke. I know it's very impractical. You got to be pretty high level. You'll never see it in a speed run, but I like nuking big groups of enemies. Uh, so, yeah, got to go with the Black Mage. That's awesome. You know what? And here is a revelation. Uh, although I am the well-read mage, Red Mage might not be my favorite job class in Final Fantasy 1. Uh, uh -oh. Black, because Black Mage is pretty dang cool. Yeah, uh-oh. <laughs> uh, it's hard to argue against the Black Mage. I mean, look at him. Iconic mysterious the, the 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 glowing yellow eyes how do you compete with that i have a fancy hat with a feather in it and a cape 
It the red mage, with... it, it, for sure, is, is the pimp of of early Final Fantasy. There's no <laughs> doubt. I mean, it's there's there's total style there. Love the feather. And in all seriousness, you know, uh, I think they're they're both kind of indispensable because the red mage is arguably. It's, I think it's really inarguably the second best class in the game because the fighter was so broken. But having access to really good mm. weapons, relatively good armor, you know, all the spells you could really want. Because like I said, the nuke is kind of overboard. And well, I think it's like warp, basically, that the black wizard gets access to that the red wizard doesn't. And the red wizard can pretty much do everything the, the black wizard can, uh, especially casting fast and things like that. So, you know... In terms of utility, hard to argue against the the red mage, but yeah, black mage is very iconic. I think people love him for sure. Yeah, yeah, and repeated throughout the Final Fantasy series, I think more so is the black mage rather than the red mage. Red mage kind of disappeared from uh, the Final Fantasy games as they continued to develop, but you always sort of have a black mage character, um, and it's very much a stable. Uh, a staple character, I think. So it's a good point. Oh, go ahead, go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna say, I think it's it's a little bit unfair that the uh, and, and sad that the the whole red mage archetype has kind of fallen out of use because it's understandable because they started to become more specialized with introducing you know blue mages and time mages and things like that, the kind of crazy stuff that came along with five. But I think it kind of unfairly pushed the red mage idea to the side when it's a very fun one, and I kind of miss it. Yeah. You know what? There's a couple questions here that I, I want to get answers for. Since we're talking about the classes, why not start with one of the best features of Final Fantasy 1? Um, this is from Kritz McCritz, who said, I was about eight when I first tried Final Fantasy 1. My job choices for the party were not great. Game over city. Today, I like fighter, red mage, white mage, and black mage. I think that's kind of the standard uh, just to interject there, um, that's uh, at least in my experience, that was like this seems like the rational, uh, basic picks. Uh, when did you first play, and which jobs did you pick? Uh, which jobs do you like to best today? So let's kind of take that question there of uh, which jobs did you pick when you first played it, if you remember, and uh, which jobs do you like best today? Who? It's a great question, and. You know, this is one of those things that I can't specifically remember really well. I want to say that I went with the default party to begin with because I didn't really understand the game very well. Uh, mm. a, a little note here, it was actually my first RPG. So uh, I was six years old uh, because I was born in 83 and I, I played the game, you know, more or less when it was released in America. And I think I went with the default. I do know that I had a black mage in my party. I can specifically remember that because I named the black mage after my grandmother but uh, oh, nice. <laughs> yeah uh she wore a, a kind of a like a blue uh she had like blue pajamas or something that she would wear around the house so i, I named the black mage after her but uh i nowadays uh i like to go with with this kind of fun you know off the wall uh parties uh you know four black mages uh run a couple of thieves with a few black mages things like that just for fun have you ever one of the big questions I've always had about this game? Have you ever done like a four white mage run? Is that even possible? I, I haven't done specifically four. I did do a, a, a white <laughs> wizard solo, and it's uh, 
It's interesting because it's very slow going, as you might imagine. But the oh, yeah. ruse spell and and you know the other evasion spells that you get and and evasion items uh, for other classes, uh, you know, when when you run solos with them, because I've, I've I've tried Black Wizard as well and couldn't quite finish it off, but. I did beat the game with a white wizard solo. Uh, I probably lost a lot of my sanity in doing so, but <laughs> yeah. it's not nearly as difficult as doing the solo thief, which I convinced my cousin to do as a kind of a joke. Uh, I told him how difficult it was going to be. I wasn't deceiving him, and he decided he wanted to do it because it was it sounded like a, an insane challenge. And he uh, he got to Astos, which is kind of the choke point. You, I think you have to get to like level mid twenties, like twenty six or something, to beat Astos, and it just it was too much of a grind. So, wow, wow. <laughs> I never I could never dream of doing something like that in this game. Uh, here was a question from Executus One who asked, Full party of red mages, yay or nay? Absolutely, all day long. They, they do everything you want them to do. I mean, you know, you can, first of all, you can, you can optimize their weapons pretty well because normally. When you're going through the game, if you're using fighters, you you sort of run out of good weapons to spread around pretty quickly. But with the red mages, you're probably going to be able to use them, uh, and you've got all the magic you can need. So yeah, it's a great party. See, and that's one. If I were to replay this game, I would love to try a full party of red mages. Uh, here was a question from Backlog Odyssey: If you could add any other mage, and I love this question. If you could add any other colored mage, what color would you pick? What would its specialty be? Who? This is a great question. This is one that I, I had, <laughs> I've never considered. Uh, it would probably have to be my favorite color, green. Uh, the problem is I can't imagine what in the world it would be centered on. Uh, it could be a Nickelodeon mage and be a slime mage, but <laughs> uh, I don't know how, how, how interesting that would be. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I actually thought of green mages too, because uh, I guess later in the Final Fantasy series, I think it's Tactics Advance Two. Uh, there are green mages, and their specific uh, specialty is uh, they buff uh, your party. So I don't see how that would be, because you only have four choices in Final Fantasy One, right? Right. I mean, imagine if you just had one character class that kind of all they did was modify stats i don't know it's kind of hard to think in those terms i guess that's a good point i think that i think later on they would become useful because if if you had a mage that that had access to fast and, and the evasion spells and things like that and you took those away from the the, the other mages it, it, it would make them useful eventually but they'd be pretty pointless early game so i don't know hmm. I, I, yeah i i totally forgotten that that green magic is, is done like that yeah, uh, well, it's one of those things that's kind of, I think, in the spinoffs. I can't think of any of the main, minus the MMOs, I can't think of any of the main ones. Uh, well, I guess Green Materia, uh, I don't know. Eh. That's a that's a rabbit trail right there. The I know it's done like that in uh, in Brave Exvius. Uh, magic is classified into black, white, and green, I believe. And green is the kind of buffing and dispelling magic, I believe. Well, you know what? I'm going to say Blue Mages. Because uh, blue mages would have been pretty cool in Final Fantasy One. Uh, not that I can recall any specific enemy attacks that would have been cool to learn, but I think that whole mechanic of the blue mage is interesting, and it makes uh, run-of-the-mill fights a little more interesting as well. Because you can kind of pick up those monster abilities. 
I, I love Blue Mages, and I actually think it would have worked uh, really well in in FF one, uh, especially if things like nuclear could have been learned from War Mech. Uh, uh, Chaos has some really great abilities like Crack, but obviously at that point, you know, uh, unless you could somehow run from him, which I don't think is is possible. You can make him run, but I don't think you can run from him. So mm. once you enter the final battle, the Blue Magic wouldn't, unless you could learn the the ability during the battle, I guess. On the spot, huh? And then use yeah. it. I think they use that mechanic in some Final Fantasy. I don't know. Not quite sure. But uh, I wanted to mention uh, that we did have a lot of audience questions on this episode. So Jordan and I are going to do our best to get through them all. Um, but if you want to ask a question on the episode, it dawned on me that I never mentioned this on the air. If you want to ask a question on the episode, uh, you just need to visit my Twitter profile at the Well-Read Mage. On Tuesdays when I announce uh, the new episode idea. So that's usually when I put out a tweet that says, hey, this is the next game we're going to talk about. If anybody's got any comments or questions you want to get a mention, this is where you drop it. So you got to respond to that. Uh, it's in one place. It's nice. It's on Twitter. Um, so get a Twitter account if you're listening and you don't have one and you want to ask a question. Uh, but I think, Jordan, that we talked a little bit here about already uh, when you first played it. Do you remember how old you were when you first played it? I was six years old because it, it must have been in 1990. Uh, I just remember that I was fairly young. Uh, I was born in November, so I wasn't quite seven years old yet. But mm. uh, yeah, I was relatively young and I was at my grandmother's house. I can remember it very well the first time firing up the game. And was it a gift or something you purchased or uh, or did your grandmother just own it? I, I didn't own it. it. I believe it was owned by my cousin. And another cousin and I were at my grandmother's house uh, with my other cousin's NES and just happened to be playing it. And we wound up borrowing it quite a lot because we loved the game. So you mentioned as well that this was your favorite or your your first, beg your pardon, I'm kind of jumping the gun here, your first uh, RPG, that's correct? Absolutely. Uh, and it was it was more than a first RPG because it was the first video game I played that introduced me to a real storyline, you know, a more dedicated storyline and a real element mm -hmm. of, of reading, which was something that I was mm -hmm. already interested in. And I, I loved to find it in a video game and to be sort of challenged in that way. It, it, it really uh, blew my mind as a young kid. And uh, I was hooked from that moment on. I, I've been a lifelong, a lifelong RPG fan, you know, without a doubt. Did you ever use that element of reading as sort of an excuse to your parents to keep playing the game? I was lucky <laughs> in that. That's a very good question. I was lucky in that my parents weren't really concerned about my, my video game playing time. But if it had been an issue, oh, okay. I certainly would okay. have. Yeah, I, I've used that excuse before. Uh, <laughs> I can't remember which parent said, said uh, haven't you been spending a little too much time on that? We're like, shoot, I'm learning to read right here. Look at this. That's right. It's educational. <laughs> Come on. Uh, here's a question from Umbral Ice. Dragon Warrior was my first RPG, but it was Final Fantasy that made me fall in love with the genre. The different party members you could choose, as well as the story, really pulled me into its world. Was it the same for either of you? So you mentioned that it was your first RPG. Um, it was not my first RPG. I cannot remember my first RPG. Um, the earliest RPGs I remember playing were like Breath of Fire 1 and Super Nintendo RPGs. 
but I don't I don't know what my first RPG was. I'm I'm quite sure it was not Final Fantasy One though. Um, but we know that uh, I believe you've mentioned this. Correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, Final Fantasy One is also your favorite game. It is my favorite game of all time, without a doubt. I I, I still replay it. Uh, for the longest time, I replayed it at least once a year. Uh, I I stay pretty informed on the community. I'm glad to see that people are still speedrunning it. Uh, Fiesel is a notable speedrunner. I love watching his runs. And there's a very active randomizer community. And there are people still picking up and learning the routes for the game even today. So I'm very glad to see that it's still alive in some form and that people are still discovering it because I... I think it's a a little bit of a, an overlooked gem in in the series at this point. Hmm. There aren't uh there aren't too many fans of Final Fantasy, I think, that I've run into that have played Final Fantasy 1, uh, especially the NES version version um which we'll talk about versions a little later. You mentioned just now a uh, speedrunning and a randomizer. I'm wondering if you could kind of uh, elaborate a little bit more on those and, and what you're talking about, especially the randomizer. That's something that's uh, not at the front of my mind when you mention the word. Oh, absolutely. Uh, when when you've played the game enough times, uh, you know, th- there are people who become interested in, in uh, beating it as quickly as possible. And the good thing about the original FF is that it's a relatively short game for an RPG. There's a little bit of grinding necessary, but... Uh, there are players who have figured out a way to optimize that uh, because the step count in the game is actually not random. It's uh, easily manipulated through powering the game off in a kind of controlled way and uh, through a series of, of very precise resets, there are players who can manipulate the encounter table to get the highest experience encounters, avoid the difficult or unrunnable ones, and have a very clear path to chaos at the end of the game. And they, they do it in very ingenious ways with some pretty technical uh, strategies involved, such as uh, intentionally allowing your mages to be petrified uh, on a certain level of the uh, Temple of Fiends revisited so that they won't die to Lich's nuke, for example, uh, or, or wow. to, to uh, Kraken or things like that, if I'm not mistaken. So, uh, it gets pretty intricate, but it's fun. It's a, it's, I believe, uh, it can be speed run in, in, uh, a matter of a couple of hours. And, uh, so it's something I enjoy. And the randomizer community is somewhat similar and that they tend to speed run it, but they, they take a ROM of the game. I, 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 from my understanding and they randomize elements. They begin with the chest so that when you play the game, you don't know what items you're going to get out of chest or shops. Uh, including major storyline items like the floater. And so it becomes a real uh, rat race to, to see who's going to get the floater first, for example. And uh, I just enjoy it. It's usually four-player races, sometimes two-player races. And uh, it's it's often done on Twitch, and there there's a community for it, a, a Discord for it. And uh, I've never actually participated in one. My my gaming time is a little bit limited now because I've, I've got you know, some, some art sort of joint issues in my hands. Uh, mm. but I just enjoy it as a spectator. It's uh, as a longtime fan of the game. I love to see that people are still uh, playing it and, and doing new things with it. Wow. Yeah. The, uh, the, um, step counting thing is something that I thought was real interesting. 
I think it was earlier this year or last year that I watched a speedrun of Final Fantasy VII and uh, saw that they were doing very deliberate movements of the character across the overworld. And uh, if you mess that up, then you mess up the RNG and then you delay your, your speedrun. Um, real, real technical stuff and an intimate knowledge of the game is required. Uh, I looked up the uh, world record. The shortest world record that I could find here uh, is, oh, this is the PSP version, it says, an hour and 25 minutes. Do you know what the current world record might be? I'm seeing a time of three hours and six minutes for for the any percent category uh oh now i see one t uh two hours and 54 minutes that's that is really fast it's incredible uh it's a relatively short game to begin with by modern standards but mm -hmm. it's really neat to see how quickly it can be sort of broken down and again i think that that uh describes that the speedrunner has a really really close knowledge of the game and how it works uh, definitely unusual too for this game like we might mention a little later in the show uh, there's a couple bugs and, and glitches in this game that you have to be aware of first time first couple times I played it uh, I didn't even know those things were there so I'm just baffled by certain features in it but again if somebody speed running would have to know that those things are there um, but Going back to this idea of it being your your favorite game, um, what what other Final Fantasies have you played, um, and what what continues to make Final Fantasy One special to you, and what makes it your favorite game? Uh, it's a great question. Uh, I've played up to ten, and I own twelve, and I intend to play it at some point. It, it's my limited ability to play that has stopped me. I, I would have played it long ago if it weren't for that. Mm -hmm. But I I prefer the the NES and SNES era. I'm I'm the uh, Clint Eastwood sitting on his porch of video games at this point. I feel that I've become very old. <laughs> uh, people make fun of me. My my cousins and my nephew make fun of me. Uh, but I, I feel that way because I enjoyed the PlayStation One era Final Fantasies. Uh, I thought that that seven was surprisingly good. I didn't play it at the time. I came back to it, and okay. I enjoyed it. I, I loved the the darker feel of it, the steampunk elements. Uh, I, I thought that eight had a phenomenal story. I think that Ultimisha is one of the most underrated villains in the series, and I think that uh, both games are are great in their own right. I felt that they were starting to lean too heavily towards the the cinematic elements and by the time you get to 10 i started to feel like i was playing an interactive movie rather than really playing a game because mm -hmm. there was so much time spent in cutscenes, and and we're getting into the voice acting and i i believe that when i started hearing uh bender uh essentially the voice of bender talking as waka i just i sort of you know mentally slapped myself on the head and just thought okay this it just it's starting to feel less like Final Fantasy and more like an anime or something uh, to me. Mm -hmm. And I enjoyed yeah. 10 in a lot of ways uh, because, you know, if I'm not mistaken, it, it was the last one that, that Uematsu worked on, or at least uh, was heavily involved with the soundtrack. Uh, 
Yeah, and, uh, that's correct. Right. So in a lot of ways, you know, it, it sort of felt like the end of an era. But uh, I, I don't know. It just even to be honest with you, even nine, although it was trying to to allude to a lot of the earlier elements of the series didn't didn't quite give me the same feeling that the earlier games did and it may it may in all fairness just be the nostalgia talking but uh i think the reason that i go back to ff1 is because as a gamer i look for games that provide a really quick immediate fun experience and when i fire up ff1 uh, i love that you can pick your party from the beginning uh it's eminently customizable there's a minimum of of time waste for me as a player you get in and although there's a lot of grinding for some morbid i guess masochistic reason i actually enjoy it and <laughs> uh the game's just uh comforting to me in a way that uh i prefer rpgs to be i like to just sort of get lost in it enjoy it enjoy the actual gameplay and not so much the the cutscenes because I, I usually find those to be a bit boring so you said a lot of really great things there. Uh, I do agree that I think uh, 10 is kind of the end of an era. Uh, 9 or 10, depending on how you hash it. Um, certainly the end of the single digits. And the single digit Final Fantasies are, are definitely different um, than the direction that the series seems to be going in now. Uh, you sort of are dealing with the animification of Final Fantasy as a series, it seems like. Um, when you even look at how dramatically different the Final Fantasy VII remake is compared to the original Final Fantasy VII, which was already, um, you know, much more cinematic and anime than the earlier games. Um, <clears throat> we talked uh, somewhat heavily about uh, cinematic uh, video game design on our Another World episode. So if you're listening and you're interested in that conversation, um, I definitely encourage you to check that out. I talked with Mike from the Controller Throwers on that episode. Uh, and the idea that um, cinematic design, um, you know, there's some people that think that some game designers really just want to make movies and, and not games. And sometimes you play games that are so much like movies that, yeah, like you're right, it feels more like an interactive movie than a game. And the game elements get kind of lost in that. Is 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 gaming merely interacting uh, or is it systems and menus and um, all of the hidden things, the, the RNG and so on and so forth? Or is it just tapping X when the screen tells you to tap X? So... There's a lot there. Uh, that's a huge conversation. That's for Absolutely. sure. Absolutely. <laughs> but uh, I appreciate that you touched on that. Um, there is a question here that I think is pertinent to what you mentioned about grinding. Uh, this is from Indent Invalid, Indent Invalid, who said, It's not the only FF I've played, but FF1 is the only one I've played to completion. I got burned out on grinding by Final Fantasy II US and Fantasy Star II. Getting to the end of both games, I found that I didn't spend enough sleepless nights grinding, so I could never beat them. I'll add FF1 was my fav or was my first, excuse me, my first RPG and I loved it to death. I had the Nintendo Power Guide, but used it for equipment and enemy references. I'd pop a huge bowl of popcorn, grind, go out on my skateboard, 
rinse, repeat until 1 a.m. And I was 12. <laughs> I really love uh, how evocative that that uh, comment is. I was kind of transported to this guy's youth. <laughs> oh, for sure. But yeah, but I'm wondering if you could comment a little bit more on grinding. Uh, so you mentioned you kind of have this uh, this re- this very specific relationship with with grinding. So grinding doesn't bother you as a, as a player. It doesn't bother me probably as much as it does uh, most more modern players, uh, and it's it's probably just a matter of you know culture. Uh, I grew up with it. I got sort of used to it. Uh, that said, I know that it's one of the main criticisms of the game, and it's totally understandable. Uh, what I'll say about grinding in FF1 is that it's kind of interesting because whether intentionally or not, and, and this seems to be pretty clearly unintentional to me, but uh, there are a couple of neat grinding spots in the game, uh, both uh, well-known and less well-known. Uh, it's fairly well-known that there's a so-called peninsula of power uh, north of, of Provoca, northeast of Provoca, and it has uh, much more powerful enemies than are supposed to be found at that early point in the game. It's a pretty good grind spot for various purposes. People have done it in uh, the randomizer speed runs. Uh, I, I, if I'm not mistaken, most of the time it's not used in the conventional speed runs, but uh, it, it's an interesting choice for people that want to grind. The, the issue is that the grind is required in the game. There's, there's no way around it. There's no, there's no technical setup. There's no strategic way to avoid the grind. You simply need the stats to, to defeat some of the more powerful enemies. So it is a little bit of an issue, but I, I would say that at that point in time, more than likely, it was one of the only ways that developers could sort of artificially, you know, inflate the, the playtime. So to me, mm-hmm. and I've, I've heard other, you know, older players repeat this sentiment that it's, it's, it's kind of a relaxing thing. It's a way to kind of just stretch out the game experience of a game that you love, but in a, in a kind of a mindless way, but in much the same way that I don't appreciate cinematics, I can imagine that a lot of players don't appreciate the, the mindless grinding so uh, mm-hmm. it is. It's just a. It's a an undeniable facet of the game. You're either going to love it or hate it. I, I would imagine. Well, that sounds about right. Uh, my own impressions of grinding is, I just don't like when uh, random battle uh, encounter rates are super high. Um, you know where you walk two steps and there's another battle. Um, but grinding uh, to me, I enjoy multitasking when I play games like this. Um, you know, I'll put on some music, I'll listen to a podcast, uh, I'll read something and hold down the A button and just <laughs> grind grind my way through it, you know? Um, Absolutely. So, yeah, so I kind of jive with what you're saying about um, it having a kind of a calming effect. Uh, but I think if it's overdone, then... It's, it kind of gets tedious. So I kind of see both sides on there. Um, oh, but sure. uh, we wanted to, yeah, we wanted to talk a little bit about um, the development of the game. Uh, Square and Sakaguchi, uh, some of the inspirations about the game. Um, one of the things that I'd like us to talk about too, if you don't mind, is um, the sort of myth that has not myth the 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 uh oh what am i trying to say here the air of legend that's built up around the origins of final fantasy 
uh, its importance for Square, and so on. Um, we've kind of done a little bit of research uh, into this. I have in one of our writers who covered the game on the wellreadmage.com and found that uh, as with a lot of things over time, some exaggeration tends to build up. Um, you know, we, we, we were just talking about myths before this, and that's sort of a tendency even with personal stories, right? You know, I tell a story about how I almost drowned as a kid, and by now that story's got like dragons in it and like a sword fight because <laughs> I tend to exaggerate. Um, but first of all, um, I wrote down here, and that was a weird like introduction for that section. Uh, first of no, that, all, that's a natural form of storytelling. We all we all do that. We we of course you know we we see our own stories as, as being you know great and grand in scale, right? So why not? It, it's of course the dragons and swords start to creep into it at some point. Yeah, <laughs> even yeah, even a story as mundane as uh, as I almost dreamed. Um, well, so pre Final Fantasy Square, okay, because uh, Final Fantasy was released in 1987. Um, didn't come to the States and the West until a little later. But before that, uh, there were other JRPGs. Um, Dragon Quest, I believe, was older. Um, Ultima and Wizardry were other um, popular titles. Um, Ultima and Wizardry and Dungeons and Dragons apparently served as the inspiration and bases for Final Fantasy. Um... But this idea, I don't know, and I want to kind of hear what you make of this too, this idea of Final Fantasy I as a rags-to-riches kind of a story that Square was really stumbling to find um, themselves or find success, uh, and Final Fantasy was supposed to be this final game uh, that they made. What do you think about all of all of that, this kind of cultural story that's built up? Like you said, it's a very fascinating story that has, has sort of, you know, arisen about the whole thing. Uh, I would tend to think, just looking at it in, in terms of what Sakaguchi himself has said, that it's it's very unlikely to be the case that they were that aware that this was this grand gesture and that it truly was going to be their, their final effort. I, I take him at his word when he says, apparently as he's been quoted, that uh, any word that began with an F would have done because I think they, they were looking for a catchy title. They wanted it to be alliterative. Uh, from what I've read, mm -hmm. uh, they wanted it to have a memorable abbreviation, you know, to be able to call it FF. And I think that's it's worked out very well for them. And I, I think yeah. the other thing about approaching that question of, of how serious the, the whole dire, you know, financial straits issue was, is that when you really look at Final Fantasy, as much as I love the game, it doesn't seem it's from a historical perspective to have completely turned around the fortunes of Square in an immediate way. The series didn't really become mega popular until at least the SNES era, and and I, you know arguably you know Final Fantasy VII. So uh, I don't know how far I buy the whole idea that uh, they were making some kind of a, you know last stand with the game, mm -hmm. I, 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 I take Sakaguchi's word that they knew that they were hard up and and it was possible that uh, they, they weren't going to continue to develop RPGs, at least, you know, on the same track that they had been. But uh, it, it's I think it's a it's a pleasant story and I think that's why it appeals to people. 
Well, definitely. And sort of the rags to riches archetype is something that um, maybe perhaps some of us aspire to even uh, if we're feeling down and out. But uh, and it's a powerful story, too, that, you know, this man who was kind of on his last legs, uh, you pleaded with this failing company to produce this game. Uh, I did read that Square wasn't very interested in producing RPGs um, until Dragon Quest came out and they saw that, you know, it was doing okay. Uh, but um, there were there were other games that Square produced. So it wasn't really that, I don't think that they were, you know, financially about to go bankrupt, let's say. So they'd, they'd done things that, um, you know, were successful games. A Rad Racer uh, is one of them. Uh, King's Knight is another pre-Final Fantasy game that they produced. Mystery Quest. Uh, one of my favorite pre-Final Fantasy games is the 3D Battles of World Runner, um, which is kind of this uh, this three-dimensional rail shooter that came with 3D goggles or 3D glasses uh, for the NES. Um, and that game had Sakaguchi and Uematsu working on it. So there were other games. I think that the desperation is perhaps overblown. Um, this is a quote from our uh, Final Fantasy critique on the wellreadmage.com, and I'll leave a link to that if you want to read it, uh, listeners. But uh, the writer said, Square was not inexperienced. Final Fantasy was not its first final fa was not its first fantasy, nor its first RPG, nor even its first hit. I also read today that uh, Sakaguchi pushed for 400,000 copies to be made for the launch of the game um, or the launch period of the game, which isn't a whole lot either. Um, you mentioned earlier about the alliteration of the title. Original name that they were playing around with was Fighting Fantasy, um, but they eventually you know, moved away from that. Apparently, and one of the interesting things about this narrative is that uh, Uematsu and Sakaguchi uh, have a slight disagreement about the exact nature of the details of the time. Um, Uematsu is apparently the source where you get um, Square was going bankrupt, and so this was literally their final fantasy. It was their final game. Uh, Sakaguchi, like you mentioned, disagreed. He said it was definitely a back-to-the-wall type situation back then, but any word that starts with F would have been fine. So uh, maybe we almost got something other than Final Fantasy. Uh, but Sakaguchi apparently um, was ready to be done with game design. And so in some sense, perhaps Final Fantasy was going to be his final game if this one didn't you know, uh, become any kind of uh, financially successful product. So who knows? We weren't there. I was not there. Jordan, I don't think you were there, yeah? Don't think so, unfortunately. <laughs> so um, we don't know. But I, I bring that up because I think it's an important thing to uh, to raise. You know, when sometimes you hear stories, especially cultural stories like these, um, it's always interesting to dig a little deeper and see who said what specifically. Um, was it Square's last, last effort? Uh, this kind of epic last throw of the dice, or was it uh, Sakaguchi's last effort? Um, Sakaguchi apparently said, the name Final Fantasy was a display of my feeling that if this didn't sell, 
I was going to quit the games industry and go back to university. I'd have to repeat a year, so I wouldn't have had any friends. It was really a final situation in that sense. And these quotes, I'll leave links in the description as well to the full articles that you can read. Um, but it is an interesting story. So I don't know if you've got other thoughts on that. If you're listening and you've got more data, I would be glad to hear it. So please tag me in that. Uh, but this was also uh, a game that famously began Uematsu's long career of working with uh, Final Fantasy as a series. What do you think about Uematsu's body of work? Oh my God. Uh, I'm a huge fan. Uh, I've often heard him compared to uh, his contemporary, and you're going to have to help me out because I'm, I'm, I'm blanking on, on his name, the fellow composer that he worked with on uh, Chrono Trigger. Uh, that was uh, uh, Yasunori Mitsuda, right? Mitsuda, thank you. Uh, and I love uh, Mitsuda's work on, on Chrono Trigger. I, I think that mm-hmm. I think that Mitsuda is, from my perspective, more uh, more of an analytical composer. He's a little bit colder, uh, more more controlled. Mm-hmm. I feel that Uematsu is more a composer from an emotional standpoint. I think he captures that very well. He really captures the feeling of a scene. And uh, I've heard people say that maybe he's not as technically impressive as Mitsuda, but uh, I'm personally more of a fan of Uematsu. That maybe just because I've, I've played more games that feature his work, but so I may be biased. Yeah. But uh, I well, love I think the that FF1 soundtrack. You... Absolutely. Oh, I think that if you compare, just to interject, I beg your pardon. Uh, sure. I think if you compare Mitsuda and and Uematsu, really interesting comparison to make. Um, Uematsu's body of work is just tremendous. Uh, it's huge. Again, even pre-Final Fantasy. So this dude was doing music before 1987. I jotted down here that Final Fantasy One is actually his 16th video game composition. So he was already... Incredible. You know, a veteran of music composition, yeah. Uh, but with Mitsuda, you kind of have the extreme pressure and passion and work that went into just Chrono Trigger. So I think that really, maybe not explains, but it kind of uh, provides some um, some field of of exploration for what you're saying about Mitsuda's work uh, seeming more technical and cold, even mechanical. Um, if I remember right, it was his uh, first opportunity to really do a full soundtrack. And so I think he probably wanted to really impress and uh, and make a good standing, um, it being his first major work like this. Um, whereas Uematsu has had time to kind of develop these skills and be more risky and develop his name too. So perhaps people trusted him a bit with more. But that's an interesting comparison to make, though. So, um, but as you were saying, I beg your pardon. Oh no, I was just going to say. Uh, I think you make a good point. I think that Uematsu may have felt more free to to take risks with his compositions and uh, go to some some more unusual places. I, I like that uh, Uematsu, as a fan of progressive rock, uh, that he uses unusual time signatures uh, in a lot of his mm-hmm. tracks. He, uh, he uses unusual tonalities. He, he uses a lot of chromaticism and things like that. Uh, I, I'd love to pick his brain and talk to him about who his influences were. Uh, I, I, you know, I haven't read too many interviews with him or seen too many interviews with him, but uh, I'd love to know exactly where he was coming from because uh, I hear some really interesting stuff 
in his work. But uh, I, I, to me, at the end of the day, it comes down to uh, the thing that distinguishes him is, is just the sheer emotion of it. When you hear tracks like uh, The Phantom Forest from mm-hmm. FF6 and, and The Lunarians from FF4, that, that the way he really captures the feel of those, those locales and the scenes uh, it's 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 really haunting. It uh, it still sends shivers down my spine listening to those tracks to this day. Absolutely, um, so many great tracks over the years, uh, especially in the single digit Final Fantasies. Um, it's sort of like well, you know, because you're you're a producer of um, you know different kinds of content. That when you first start out, I think it's easier for most people to probably slip into perfectionism be like this has to be perfect this is you know my first couple entries or my first thing ever and so it has to be so finely tuned and you work really really hard on it you pour yourself into it um not to say that you don't in the future but as you kind of develop your craft whatever your craft is you find yourself pulling from different things within yourself and relying on things that you've done before and developing systems and habits that help you along the way so that you can spend less time sort of focusing on the uh, the finer details and getting those exactly perfect and maybe pulling from like what you're talking about, the emotion, the humanity, uh, of those things. So maybe that kind of explains again the difference between Mitsuda and, and Uematsu and why we see so much richness from uh from the Uematsu canon. Absolutely. And I, I think that with that, you know, the the, the veteran nature that, that Uematsu had at that point in his career, you also have a, a loosening up where he's willing to to simply be himself. And I think that accounts for a lot of the uh, the rock influences that you hear in his music, the use of the more of the the rock drum set and and you know a, a bass guitar feel and, and electric guitar, even starting as early as as FF six, uh, where Mitsuda's work is more orchestral, and there's no, nothing wrong with that. You know, of course, Chrono Trigger's mm-hmm. soundtrack was was brilliant and and phenomenal and and emotional in its own right. Don't get me wrong, but. Mm-hmm. Uh, I feel that at least at that point in their careers, I'm not familiar with Mitsuda's later work, but at that point in their careers, Uematsu's was more uh, personal in nature. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's interesting too. I mean, (laughs) I made a joke when we were doing the Chrono Trigger series of podcasts um, and we were talking about different soundtracks and I said, I only like soundtracks that put their composers into the hospital. Uh, because that, of course, infamously, famously, <laughs> is the story of what happened with Mitsuda, right? That he worked himself into exhaustion and developed, I think it was ulcers. Um, and again, that's kind of, that seems like, I hesitate to say, because I, obviously I don't want to insult the person, um, an amateur uh, mistake. But I don't actually mean amateurish in the sense of... Um, you know, it, it, it being something that was clumsy. I think he was very much uh, a masterful... I mean, again, the Chrono Trigger soundtrack is fantastic, uh, but the way that he poured himself so heartily into it uh, ended up impacting his health. So maybe Uematsu by then had already kind of uh, learned his way through those things as a, as a veteran of music composition. Um, but, yeah, it's an interesting comparison to make. We did get a couple questions about music. Uh, Teacher Bloke eighty five 
uh, asked one. Uh, here's one from ABXY Reviews, who asked simply, what is your favorite song on the soundtrack? I absolutely love this question, and I, I hate to, to uh, him haul like I normally do and, and hedge a little bit, but <laughs> I, it, it's, a, it's a kind of a, a dual answer because uh, it, it's the Temple of Fiends theme, but I can't decide whether I like the, the, the original one or the revisited one because they're, they're clearly based on one another. You know, people have kind of analyzed them, and uh, Uematsu did a, a fantastic job of, of uh, evoking the original one in the revisited theme, but I love them both. I, I, I couldn't, I really couldn't decide. I, I guess if you put a gun to my head and just said, you know, you've got to choose, I'd, I'd say the original one, but uh, they're both beautiful. I love them. You could definitely see how he developed those iconic themes in this first uh, outing. It's it's incredible, isn't it? I mean, right out, out the door, you have the Final Fantasy theme. You have the prelude. The prelude, to my mind, is one of the greatest pieces of video game music. Uh, the fact yes. that it can be, yes, absolutely, that it can be uh, reinvented in so many different ways with so many different instrumentations. Uh, it is something, and I want to say something very specific here, that uh, music developed for the NES, I think, played around with a lot of things like melody, tempo, rhythm, percussion, but a lot of the times those individual notes in NES music are at the loudest possible that they can be. And so you, you always get kind of this chirpy, um, tinny sound. Uh, and don't get me wrong, I love the NES, but what I want to say is that with the prelude, Uematsu actually played around with a kind of echo uh, by causing this, uh, well, I guess it's a sort of arpeggio, to uh, have different levels of volume as it uh, rose in a crescendo and then fell back. So I think it's already a really complex piece in terms of its composition. Uh, for the very first game in the series on the NES is to me always impressive. Every time I hear that prelude piece off of the NES soundtrack, I'm just blown away. And I think that people sometimes forget, you know, fans of, of the later entries in the series that not only the prelude, but the prologue and the victory theme all derive from the first game. And it's, it, as you point out, the, the prelude alone is, would have been enough to cement Uematsu's reputation as, as a master game composer at that point. But uh, I find, honestly, I find the prologue to be more, more emotional and, and more beautiful even than the prelude. Mm -hmm. uh, love the Final Fantasy prologue theme. I, I specifically love the version in Final Fantasy IV, but uh, it's very beautiful here. And, uh, of course, you know, who doesn't love the, the victory theme? But, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's really remarkable what he did. And uh, I've always said that the limitations of the NES uh, sound chip forced composers to really dig deep and find melodies and, and simple harmonies that would be appealing to people and memorable. And I think mm -hmm. they, they did that remarkably well. I mean, they, they succeeded in spades. And uh, I think Uematsu is one of the one of the great masters at it, without a doubt. Oh yeah, yeah. That Final Fantasy uh, prologue theme, uh, I like that. In later games, they kind of save that for the credits because it really seems like that triumphant, regal sound. Um, I was listening to it once with my wife, and she said it kind of sounds like a graduation theme, 
And I was like, it kind of does. Uh, it kind of sounds like the end of an era, uh, the beginning of something new. It has so much of that emotion, like you mentioned, in this one song. And again, this is the NES. I mean, it ha they had just a few layers to play around with, just a few sounds. And the things that he could pull out of that sound chip were just incredible. Um, so, but the... Uh, the Final Fantasy prologue theme kind of moves us into our next subject neatly because we want to talk about story for a little bit here. Um, and I was wondering, since you have that that radio voice, if you wouldn't mind reading the uh, opening text crawl for us. Absolutely. Uh, it's a it's a favorite piece of text from uh, RPGs. Uh, you know, in my personal opinion, uh, I've actually covered it on uh, my channel. I. I love it so much that that I translated it into Latin to make it sound kind of fun. And then I discovered That's that awesome. someone had actually translated the yeah, but someone, some really enterprising, awesome person out there that I'd like to to shake hands with, translated the entire game into Latin. There's a there's a ROM out there in Latin, which is really cool. But uh, anyway, wow, uh, yeah, I love it, and it it uh, I think it really sets a scene, and uh, it runs. The world is veiled in darkness. The wind stops. The sea is wild, and the earth begins to rot. The people wait, their only hope, a prophecy. When the world is in darkness, four warriors will come. After a long journey, four young warriors arrive, each holding an orb. Beautiful. <laughs> and that, that elegantly sets us into this context now of discussing the story. So I like that it's got this, this text crawl, but uh, I like that... And I'm wondering if we can kind of get sort of an overall uh, view of the game in a nutshell, if you wouldn't mind talking a bit here in a, in a, in a moment about kind of the premise and, and what's happening in this game. Uh, but I do like that, you know, at the start of the game, you start off uh, near this castle and they're like, oh, you got to go rescue the princess. And a very popular um, kind of a fairy tale uh, motif to use, especially in the time. Heck, Super Mario is still using that that <laughs> idea to this day of rescuing the princess. Uh, but you go and you rescue the princess and then you bring her back and that's typically the end of the game. But then the title comes up and you're like, oh, well, this is actually the start of the game. So lots of cool things that they did there. But I'm wondering if you could kind of talk a bit more about the content of the story, kind of the premise and that sort of thing. Well, I'd like to mention, first of all, that you make a really good point uh, that the rescuing of the princess, you know, being the beginning of the game rather than the end is a really interesting subversion uh, for, for such mm -hmm. an early game. Uh, so the idea, you know, is, is basically laid out in the prologue and it, it kind of sets the tone for the rest of the series where uh, the balance of nature in the world ha has fallen out of whack, right? That... Uh, the elements are raging out of control. Uh, things are not proceeding as they should. And it's disrupting society, obviously, in some way. And something has to be done about it. And lo and behold, the sort of faded warriors arrive. So we've got these elements of uh, prophecy and the fulfillment of said prophecy and what that means. And we have the, the, the obvious running motif of the series with the crystals and the, the symbol of light and the restoration of light. Uh, and they're all fairly basic elements, uh, and you have 
uh, numerological business going on. You know, they probably didn't just pick the number four out of a hat. On some level, mm. the number four is appealing. It's symmetrical. It looks beautiful in the option screen. You, know, you can see it just from an aesthetic standpoint. Mm -hmm. uh, it forms a square, which is kind of, you know, interesting given the name of the company that made it. And uh, it's just a, it's a, it's a very, I think, beautifully elegant and, and simple story uh, in its beginnings because you, you know, you have uh, that, that classic, uh, you know, anxiety inducing, uh, you know, uh, medieval uh, distress of, of, you know, losing the princess. You, you've lost a, a royal, you know, figure. And she has to be restored, but then, then that's done. That business is taken of taken care of fairly quickly. And oh no, you know, there's a lot more to this story. It's not just the the balance of of the kingship and and your your kingdom and and local society that's been thrown out of whack. It's it's the nature of the entire world, uh, which I think is a kind of an interesting uh, parallel. It's 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 an interesting. Uh, distinction i think that the game has in comparison to some other games uh, of the era it, it's a it's a much more elemental broader uh theme that's going on throughout the game mm. mm -hmm. uh i like um and we're kind of touching on a couple elements of the video that you put together for final fantasy one uh which we're definitely going to link to in the description of the podcast here so check that out uh that's off the ancient literature dude channel on youtube um but uh, one thing that you mentioned is you pointed out the fact that the protagonists are essentially blank slates. They're unnamed. You give them names, but in that you, you're you expressing yourself into them. Uh, this is literal role-playing then in that sense. Um, so the, these aren't really characters in the sense that we get character development from them. Yes. Uh, I, I think that I, I would imagine... Uh, part of the decision to make the characters blank slates was uh, the influence, the, the very obvious influence from D&D, &D, where the player sort of interjects uh, him or herself into the role, into the world, and it, it becomes more about a feeling of immersion and uh, experiencing the, the, the plot such as it is in a more fun, kind of a, a casual way, a spontaneous way. Um, I think FF1 tried to emulate that in a kind of interesting way. And it's one of the things that I find fun about it. Um, I, I've spoken about it before that the decision to roll with characters that uh, are not named and have no personality of their own of their own does make it so that uh, we lose out on, on inter-character dialogue and, and that manner of advancing the storyline. But the, the, omission of those elements also makes it so that we can focus on the main plot, uh, which, which is surprisingly complex. If you really look at mm -hmm. it for, for an eight big game and, uh, you know, focuses, it puts more of the focus on the gameplay and, and the overall, uh, story. So I, I think it's, I think it was a very interesting decision. Uh, I think I'm obviously players feel differently about it. I, I would say that the tide of history has been that, uh, players tend to prefer more well-developed characters, but, I uh I think there's something to be said for the way that that Final Fantasy One did it, right? And uh, I think what you're hinting at is perfect, which is that it works for this title, right? It's not that we would prefer Absolutely. completely for all games to have unnamed protagonists 
neither would we prefer uh, all games to have characters that undergo intense character development and are uh, very character-focused games. But having a game like this is interesting, right? Because then it allows for, as you said, a more of an emphasis on the larger plot um, and not so much on the feelings and the emotions, uh, the inner turmoil of these characters. Um, that, to my mind, is is a lot of what uh, some classic literature and ancient literature is about. You don't always get to see kind of the inner turmoil uh, or the, the character development, especially in the modern sense uh, of, of these characters. So I'm thinking specifically about um, a piece of classic literature that I read recently, again, uh, Beowulf. Beowulf doesn't, as a character... Uh, to my mind, doesn't fall into the same sort of category as most characters in uh, in movies and books that we see today. Whereas he starts in a certain position and then he's supposed to end in you know a much more developed position. Sort of Beowulf is always a boss, always in this book. Yes, he doesn't. He's max level already. He doesn't need to to gain any more skills. He can already tear the arm off of Grendel. Right, he doesn't need he doesn't need anything else. And in fact, as he gets older, his strength wanes; it doesn't increase. So, and we don't get to see, you know, what did Beowulf think? You know, did he have any kind of misgivings when he was wrestling with Grendel? No, you're just given the brute facts, and he seems like this, you know, uh, unstoppable force. So, I think that in some senses, there's precedent for that in uh in ancient literature and classic literature there absolutely is and uh beowulf is a fascinating example because there is uh, a corresponding uh, norse story there's a norse side to it because it was apparently a, a common uh, germanic uh, folk story and uh greta saga uh, preserves it. It, it, it i believe that it's also found in some uh, old high german sources if i'm not mistaken but uh there's a norse equivalent and in greta saga the figure of Gretter, who's essentially the Beowulf equivalent, uh, does exhibit fear. He mm. uh, he develops a fear of the dark after his confrontation with, in this case, uh, Glamra, the, the 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 Norse equivalent of Grendel. Mm. And uh, we we do have his his uh, emotional reaction. And and Beowulf chooses not to do that because Beowulf was set as an epic poem, and obviously was very different in tone. It was supposed to be more like you know the Iliad or the Odyssey or the Epic of Gilgamesh, where it's we're focusing more on the actions of the hero and not the, the inner life. Mm. But uh, absolutely. Uh, I, I think that real, really in-depth examination of characters' feelings is more of a modern thing. It's, there's more of an emphasis on the individual. We don't, mm. we don't tend to look for these kind of cultural heroes like, like Beowulf, uh, you know, or, or we certainly, we shape them and, and perceive them differently. But uh, yeah, there's, there's no doubt there, there is precedent for it. Uh, not not every story has to have you know the character sort of going emo and, and telling us exactly what uh, you know he or she feels. Uh, you know, I mean, it's going just, emo. Uh, it, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not everybody's going to be uh, you know getting out the the guitar and and you know writing a, a you know a, a mopey song about about their feelings. Uh, yeah. So, so it's sort of like so. and I crack up because the first thing I think about is Cloud and Squall, right? Uh, very. Right. 
internalizing characters. But it's fascinating, and here's the thing, it's fascinating that the same series can contain both styles, can contain That's what right. you've just told me about this high Germanic version of Beowulf and can contain sort of the, the Beowulf epic. At the same time, these two styles of storytelling can exist. What I don't like is when somebody says a game like Final Fantasy I has no story because we don't get to see the same kind of character as Cloud or Squall. That's actually, it's just not true, right? And I, earlier I mentioned to you that one of my favorite books was A Tale of Two Cities. In a lot of A Tale of Two Cities, the story is driven by sort of this larger narrative of what's happening in society and what's going on with the revolution at the time. That's still story, even though it's not particularly character-driven and the character moments are sort of uh, relegated to these other parts in the book. That's absolutely right. Uh, in the hands of a skilled author or, or story, storyteller in any form, like a, a, you know, a, a video game script writer or, or producer, uh, the, the, the events that are being portrayed can be a character in and of themselves. The story can be a character. Uh, the right. sheer, the quality of the narration can be very compelling, can, can be a, essentially a character in its own right. And uh, I think that the, the story of Final Fantasy I, as it's told, is very beautiful in its own right. It's, it's relatively simple and elegant on the surface. It has, it has a, an inner complexity that is still debated to this day. Uh, because the time loop element gives all of us a headache. And I don't think that anybody mm -hmm. will ever fully understand it. Uh, because first of all, let's face it, we've already seen it recently with uh, in-game, you know, uh, uh, time loops and time travel and fiction, you know, are, are, are very difficult things to sort of unravel. Hmm. But, uh, but uh, it's, yeah, there's no doubt. It's a, um, it's a different form of storytelling, but it's not a lesser form. And, and simply having the characters emote more and, and, you know, relate their feelings doesn't necessarily enrich the story in any way unless it's done well and, and it, it doesn't even necessarily make us empathize with the character because as we've seen in some cases like with Squall it, it can backfire it can make the character less relatable right to some people yeah uh, right there's a lot of people I know who you know really relate to Squall and then there's some people I know that do not at all to, like at any measurable percent um, so I think that that's a very polarizing character. With Final Fantasy 1, 2, there's this concept that these four warriors of light come out of nowhere in answer to this prophecy. They could be anyone. They are, in a sense, the everyman. Uh, they, they're they nobodies. Right. They don't have any history. We don't know anything about their genealogy. Do they come from rich families, from poor families, from you know high lineage, from you know, magical origins. We don't know. Um, but I, what I like about that is you can kind of say that it doesn't really matter who you are, the matters of your birth. What matters is what you choose to do with yourself today. And so that's these four, you know, whatever you name them, you could name them nonsense. Uh, but that doesn't change what they represent. Yeah, I think that uh, the the way that they did the characters uh was pretty specifically referred to in the ending when uh they they directly referenced the player they say that in the end you know the, the, it's all essentially on you and uh 
so I don't think that was a, uh, an accident or a mistake. I think that uh, they were pretty clearly going with the whole idea of, of a self-insert. Mm-hmm. Uh, they wanted the player to feel like a part of the game mm-hmm. uh, in, in a kind of a D&D way. And, uh, th- and so, you know, the only way to really do that is to have the characters be blank slates and nameless. And mm-hmm. uh, I think it works pretty well in that way. Uh, I, I don't think that we're supposed to... to uh, you know, really give a lot of much deeper thought to the, the, the nature of the characters, except to, to say that, that we are these characters, that these characters are, are us and they're, they're our friends and families. And, and as you said, they could be anyone, mm-hmm. uh, which is, you know, is at least a neat idea in distinction or in contrast to the one that in, in many modern games and, and high fantasy novels that the character has to be a, a chosen one because that, that can get old pretty quickly. Right. Right, right, right. Uh, and I think, too, that kind of bleeds out from Final Fantasy 1 into a lot of JRPGs at the time that used silent protagonists. Um, we were talking about Breath of Fire earlier, right? Ryu is kind of this silent protagonist. Um, in Chrono Trigger, there is a big internal argument uh, between developers as to whether Chrono should be a silent protagonist and therefore a vessel for the player to inhabit, not merely as a point of view character, but as a kind of avatar for the player in the game. Um, so you have this concept of in Final Fantasy One, these are avatars for the player to inhabit with uh, their own roles. Uh, but if you're going to go the route of these are characters that talk, as soon as they talk, they express right who they are they express themselves that self-revelation and so once a character talks that exists outside of the player and so it's a just it's a deliberate design choice either you have a silent protagonist that acts as this avatar or either you have fully fledged characters or at least somewhat formed characters um, that will act separately from the player and the player can either agree or disagree with them Right. Sometimes you play a game and you disagree with the main character. That's always interesting. <laughs> and I don't think that that one or the other option is is necessarily better or worse. I think that the it's a matter of game design and it's what works best for any particular game. And I, I do find it frustrating occasionally that there seems to be a large part of the player base that that finds a silent protagonist somewhat uh, grating or even lazy on the part of the developers. And I don't think that's necessarily the case. I mean, I think that, of course, there may have been cases where it was true, but uh, I look at mm-hmm. I look at this game, I look at Breath of Fire, and I think that there are times when, as you said, the developers deliberately want the player to, to inhabit the role of that character and to more strongly feel a part of that world. And, mm-hmm. and that can be an important part of storytelling in gaming that's fairly unique to gaming because most forms of storytelling can't so directly invite the player into the world. We can't actually participate in the events of the the story as you can in gaming. Right, right, right. And I just thought of uh, Super Mario RPG, right? They famously made Mario uh, without any any voice, even though, you know, we know that he can say things like Wahoo and Mamma Mia and things like that. But in Super Mario RPG... Uh, it's it's that direct uh, function of the silent protagonist that you can inhabit 
and and walk through this world in their shoes more directly than if he had fully formed thoughts himself. I think, too, that I run into people who perceive that as kind of anachronistic or archaic even. Um, but if it fits the type of, of game, uh, and I think they're still making games like this where you have silent protagonists, uh, but if it fits the kind of story that you're telling, it makes sense to use that as your device. Uh, but we got a couple other questions here about um, the story, three of them actually. Uh, and I'm wondering if you would, I feel like you're, you're better equipped to handle these questions uh, given your, your area of expertise. So I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind reading them and maybe you can tackle them uh, kind of one by one in a row here. Certainly. So, uh, from Retro Game Brews, we have what ancient literary motifs were used best in the FF games? What source material would you guess they borrowed from to create the in-game stories? Um, I've talked about this before in some of my videos. Uh, it's, a, it's a fascinating thing with any you know, uh, literary product or any story, a, a game product in this case, to try to determine the, the actual influences of an author because that, that can be a tricky guessing game. But especially with Final Fantasy, because you have uh, Japanese developers who uh, certainly were influenced by Western ideas, uh, very clearly by D&D &D and things like that. We can trace that to some of the, the monster names mm -hmm. uh, and that sort of thing. I think they were clearly influenced by, uh, by more modern science fiction. But what, what were the, if, if we're talking about ancient literary motifs in, in terms of the story, if I'm going to look at, at the first game, there's the the most obvious one is that that uh, loss of a royal where you have the the princess being being kidnapped. There's a there's a, a kind of a panic in the kingdom. She has to be restored. Uh, that's the most obvious one. Uh, as you progress, you you have common things like pirates. You have the the failure of the earth at Melmond. Uh, so you have very classic fertility issues that were the basis for the beginnings of every prominent religion on the face of the earth, whether Mesopotamian or otherwise. Uh, and you have the mermaids at the uh, sea shrine that are obviously analogous to Atlantis because you have a kind of a sunken, lost civilization. Uh, onward to the idea of the floating castle, which is somewhat anticipated by uh, the the true history of uh, uh, I believe the, the the author's name was uh, Luc Lucian. Excuse me. Uh, you have uh, the the true history of Luke, uh, Lucian, and uh, so you you have in the ancient world already stories of civilizations in the skies, uh, advanced evidently scientific civilizations that were beyond then contemporary human understanding. And uh, that's the thing that I find most fascinating about this particular Final Fantasy is that you have the beginnings of that exploration of, of what is this, the separation, the dividing line between fantasy and science fiction. And when you have a world that has high magic and a prior advanced civilization with with robots and and flying fortresses that line becomes very thin so uh i would say personally that the the motifs used in this game in particular are fairly universal uh they're fairly primordial 
and they're easily recognizable because they they work very simply and beautifully if if uh if we look you know to the modern world if, if these disasters began to happen on this scale there would be global panic if, if the earth began to completely fail and volcanoes were raging and and the winds were going out of control it's it's no different now than it ever was we we have an innate human need for for stability and balance in our environment and if that balance is upset then we tend to become pretty upset as human beings so mm, mm. dude amazing amazing stuff one of the great questions i think to ask of final fantasy one is is it a fantasy or is it science fiction and the answer is yes <laughs> it's both yes exactly it yeah, it somehow manages to be I mean, people tend to think of, you know, the pre Final Fantasy six, pre Final Fantasy seven Final Fantasies as sort of strictly medieval. Uh, but they're clearly not. Final Fantasy four has science fiction elements of aliens on the moon. Uh Final Fantasy one has these elements of time travel and, and time paradoxes, uh and advanced civilizations and things like that. So I think it already is kind of playing around with ideas of mixing science fiction with high fantasy and creating science fantasy. So when I tend to think about the Final Fantasy series as a whole, I think of it as science fantasy, not as strictly science fiction, certainly not hard science fiction, uh, but then not even particularly high fantasy. I think right from the get-go with this first game, it already outgrew that uh that inspiration from dungeons and dragons which i think is much more high fantasy of you know the elves the dwarves and so on and so forth which final fantasy one has but it does more than that um when you're mentioning the advanced civilization uh i thought of uh this one time that i learned that there was a robot in greek mythology uh talos uh, i believe he was yeah constructed by hephaestus to guard Crete, if I remember right, I I can't. I'm not as, as specifically familiar with the story as I should be, but uh, I, I do believe that it was it was Sophistus, and it's it's a remarkable thing that uh, there there were mechanical constructs that were being conceived of by the ancient Greeks that could function autonomously, yeah, in that way uh, that that they anticipated things like that, an automaton, a robot, and so that sort of stuff being in Final Fantasy is, I think, a great a great answer to uh, Retro Game Brew's question. But what's the next one here? Uh, we've got from Chris Rice, uh, one of the seminal works analyzing fictional character arcs and fiction in general is The Hero's Journey. How does the classic cycle described in each step of the eponymous journey get portrayed in any or all of the Final Fantasy games? And, of course, it's a, it's a great question because that this is largely what Final Fantasy is about. Uh, again, I would take it I'd look at uh, let's let's take this game and see how it tackles it in a kind of unique way. First of all, uh, the first Final Fantasy doesn't have a single hero, so mm -hmm. we don't have the development per se, but we have a lot of the steps of the story. We have we have the initial impetus of of the the loss that we've already described of of, of the princess and of the the events of the world. We have multiple descents into the underworld in the form of the, the caves and the dungeons and things like that. We then have an ascent to the heavens in, in the floating castle. And 
in a in a very remarkable way, we have a, a literal time loop uh, that kind of ties it all together. So the first one does it in a in a really interesting way. But when you go further into the series, you get into stuff like like Cecil and Four, and then you get the kind of split right. hero situation of Six, and and then you start getting into a, I think a more strictly science fiction element with with seven and eight and uh i I don't know moses what what do you think uh i think it's a very fascinating question uh exactly how this series tackles uh the hero's journey yeah so that's a huge question (laughs) i loved i loved at the end there uh where chris said uh how it gets portrayed in any and all and or all of the final fantasy games like well how long do we have? That's a lot. That's a big question. <laughs> yeah, it's a big, it's a huge question. And certainly there, there are people more qualified than myself who have written about uh, the hero's journey as it pertains to specific video game stories. The hero, the hero's journey is kind of this um, like very popular um, interpretive motif that, um, that gets brought up a lot um, because it is so pertinent. It's so relevant. Um, I think that, and I, I went over and I read a little bit and kind of refreshed my mind on it. Um, I think that it becomes more relevant as you start to get into characters who are less avatars for the player and more fully-fledged characters themselves. It's hard to see, for instance, where uh, Atonement of the the warriors of light takes place where redemption takes place for them. It's hard to see where they're at their lowest, uh, for instance, where they're at sort of the, the bottom, right? Whereas with, I love that you brought up, uh, Cecil in final fantasy four, you can really see this clear crystal clear, ha crystal clear plan, uh, this clear, uh, arc of him, you know, casting off the mantle of the dark knight and taking up, you know, the mantle of the paladin and sort of this, this big redemptive arc uh, that brings him kind of full circle. So, but in final fantasy one, I don't think that it's, I don't think it's as pertinent. We'll say that. No, it's certainly not, not in terms of analyzing the actual characters, but I, I think that the, the, the the kind of classic mythological journey that that this popular concept has begun to describe the steps of that journey are are still pretty surprisingly evident at a lot of key points i think it it doesn't fit the mold exactly but uh i think that we have a lot of the same things that we would see uh orpheus doing for example uh you know descending mm-hmm. into the underworld and and then having to reascend and uh so we we have a lot of the same elements it's clearly borrowing from them but it doesn't have a character to invest the like you said the emotional the redemptive aspects into right. it so it's, it's a kind of like a, a strange no man's land with it but it's still it's still aware of it i think yes and I, that's where i think what we were talking about earlier of the uh the the focus is on the plot and sort of these uh broader global political ideas uh, that sounds pretty intense for Final Fantasy One, but really, I think that that a lot of it, like when I played through it, um, I was like, a lot of this is really about the cultures that inhabit this world and how they're reacting to certain things, and and the the villages and the towns and the people groups and things like that. Uh, certainly, much more so than um, what your avatars are experiencing. It seems like 
like you said, I think that there's parts of the hero journey that are clearer in Final Fantasy One than others. Uh, if you treat the main plot as a kind of big character, uh, then that's certainly there. Um, if you treat the Warriors of Light to the hero's journey, um, there's parts of it there, maybe just kind of a trimmed down or a primitive um, version in Final Fantasy One, but it is certainly uh, clear in in later uh, uh, entries in this in this franchise. I think. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, uh, I'm sorry. We have one from uh, Ash One Rose. Along with Hero with a Thousand Faces per EWE, I think Jungian and Gestalt psychology, as well as basic mythology and literary slash film analysis, are vital to start examining the game's narratives. Uh, it's it's a good point. Uh, I'm I'm a fan of Jung myself. I'm not familiar with uh, Gestalt psychology in particular, but uh, I, I think that Jung may, in some ways, be again more more obviously pertinent in later entries when you get the individual struggles and you can begin to analyze the characters on an individual psychological basis but uh we we have certainly those fundamental elements of the collective unconscious uh common easily recognizable and universal symbols uh in certainly in its most basic form in the form of the monsters of the game uh, even if they're borrowed from D and D, you know, wholesale or, or, or in parts, uh, some of these these horrifying ideas that are are presented in the game as the, in the form of, of the the minor uh, monsters or the bosses are are clearly uh, borrowed from the broader ideas in in Jungian psychology about the, the things that are that are most prevalent in, in symbolizing mankind's fears. Uh, but again, I, I think that if you want to start talking about things like uh, the the confrontation with the shadow and, and the anima and things like that, you'd really have to start to look to, to Cecil and FF4 onwards uh, to really get a, a better discussion going with that, I would think. Yeah, I completely agree with that. Um, there's a, there's a C.S. Lewis quote that I'm, I'm trying to find. Uh, in my memory banks and it's just not coming to me but there's one that uh, i picked up and i had to look it up here uh, c.s lewis of course um you know famous writer and one of his areas of study was myth and and fairy tale um and i think he had a lot of very interesting perspectives uh particularly on the value of what was perhaps and is perhaps still written off as kind of just kid stories uh and fluff um Whereas he sort of had a perspective that storytelling, even in these forms, um, told us about uh, the world around us and indeed about ourselves. Um, he said, what makes that world valuable is not, of course, mere multiplication of the marvelous, either for comic effect or for mere astonishment, as I think in the worst of the Arabian Nights or in some children's stories, but its quality, its flavor... If good novels are comments on life, good stories of this sort are actual additions to life. They give, like certain rare dreams, sensations we never had before and enlarge our conception of the range of possible experience. I think that, that Lewis was right, uh, as he often was, in his uh, views on, on the, the lasting and transformative power of these kinds of stories. Uh, 
I think that that like his contemporary Tolkien, he was uh, a great voice on it. Uh, I, I tend to uh, favor Tolkien in in his view on the matter because I felt he was a little bit more impartial in in accepting the wider world of of mythical contributions. Uh, but C.S. Lewis, uh, I, I thought first of all, I'm a huge fan of uh, Till We Have Faces. Uh, oh, read it yeah. in college and. Uh, yeah, found it to be just <laughs> just a very, very beautiful commentary on, especially religious truth, and and uh, a very good way of showing that that sometimes uh, we know less about the world than we may think that we do. That our our, our perspective is limited as human beings, as finite beings, and uh, yeah, I mean he's he's a great voice on these things, and uh, I, I think it's so true. And but I I think even going beyond that. It's not simply the case that that these sorts of stories enrich us or provide that that additional savor to life. I think that I think that like this this uh, uh, Twitter uh, follower who who uh, posed this question was suggesting it's a very good question. Uh, stories like this t- do tell us more about ourselves, as as you were suggesting uh, when you were beginning to frame the question. Uh, they they tell us about very deep fears and concerns i think from an evolutionary standpoint that we've picked up along the way as human beings and uh, much like tolkien i don't think that these symbols are childish or childlike uh i think that they of course uh, you know too great of of an infatuation with them can become harmful like anything in life all Mm -hmm. things in moderation yeah but uh i think that in and of themselves uh, i think they're often unfairly uh, minimized by, you know, so-called serious critics. And, uh, you know, I'm not trying to suggest, by the way, that the makers of Final Fantasy one specifically deliberately sat around and intended to create a, a commentary on Western <laughs> psychology or something. But, yeah. But I, I love that. you. I, I love that you said that because I kind of it's almost it's almost in the question uh when you once you start to get this deep in discussing games uh the developers didn't anticipate this discussion and i don't think they anticipated bringing up things like young in in here uh and psychology and so on and so forth but i think that their their basic fact of being human is is what lends that degree of depth and humanity to it Absolutely. Uh, I, I think that, in my view, uh, you know, authorial intent is a, is a common fallacy when we're when we're examining uh, any kind of you know narrative. And uh, the truth is that uh, whatever the the more commercial intentions of the makers may have been, uh, series like Final Fantasy do draw on deeper things. Uh, they draw on it in a in a, a conscious way by by deliberately alluding to mythology, and I think that sometimes they touch on deeper things in a less intentional way by by sort of touching on more deeply hidden mythological and and psychological patterns. Uh, and you know, I, I think that those things are fun to talk about. Again, I, not that not I think that either of us are suggesting that that. Uh, 
Sakaguchi was was trying to write some kind of a dissertation, but because yeah, yeah. uh, clearly that clearly wasn't the, the intent of the scope of the game. But it's uh there's there's more there's more under the surface when you're talking about anything even inspired by mythology, and it, it's just fun to talk about. Yeah, that. absolutely. I did for uh for all intents and purposes, I did find the quote that I was looking for. It is from Lewis's uh, on stories and other essays on literature. Um, which have you read that one? I don't believe that I have. Okay, it's it's pretty good. He talks about, um, you know, his perspective on fairy tales and and what myth uh, brings and values and so on and so forth. But here's here's the quote. You might find it interesting. Uh, the value of the myth is that it takes all the things we know and restores to them the rich significance which has been hidden by the veil of familiarity. The child enjoys his cold meat, otherwise dull to him by pretending it's a buffalo just killed with his own bow and arrow. And the child is wise. The real meat comes back to him more savory for having been dipped in a story by putting bread, gold, horse, apple, or the very roads into a myth. We do not retreat from reality. We rediscover it. So I think this was what I was trying to phrase with uh, it not being their express purpose to create um, a series of conversations that can get this deep off of Final Fantasy I. Uh, but the fact that they're borrowing from ideas that uh, people before them played around with and, and thought about and stories that people before them that had developed and things that, that they themselves believed in. I think it's impossible as a creator to an extent to... Uh, create anything without anything of yourself being in it, if that makes sense. Absolutely. No, and, and I'm very glad that you, that you, uh, you looked that quote up because uh, I, I think it's a beautiful one and a very telling one because I think that, that th those, those essential elements that, that Lewis is describing about uh, discovering the, the, the deeper, the, you know, the, the, the richness of our everyday experience, rediscovering it, re-realizing it, is is something that a lot of modern critics and and you know more more increasingly secular society doesn't understand that whether we believe in these symbols or not whether individual people believe in the supernatural or or, or faith or things like that spirituality they do exist because we as human beings have a much longer history than our our modern more civilized one uh, we spent a very long time uh, developing from uh, much simpler ancestors, and those those evolutionary patterns still remain. And whether we want to look at it from a, a, a psychological point of view, as with Jung, or a more evolutionary point of view, in, in a more scientific way, we our beliefs as human beings are not entirely rational. We're not entirely rational beings, as much as we would like to believe that we are. Mm -hmm. And we do see things in a kind of a uh, egocentric individualized way we see ourselves as the heroes of our own stories whether we will acknowledge that or not and we do have a tendency to to uh turn life experiences into narratives to to give them more meaning and these these symbols the ideas of monsters and the ideas of gods and myths uh we still respond to very powerfully even if we don't consciously believe in them mm-hmm uh, there's the man 
like I said before we started recording, you and I need to talk more, <laughs> more frequently. Absolutely. Uh, the conversations we could have. Uh, one of the one of the things that you mentioned um, is actually something that came to my mind just as you were saying it, um, which is a tendency today to I think <clears throat> rely on purely uh, secular scientific explanations. So, you know, you could approach. Uh, a tree, and I, I'm looking at a tree, uh, this beautiful Japanese maple that I have on my computer here as the wallpaper for November. And um, you can ask, why is this tree here? And from a scientific stance, you could say, well, because, you know, a seed fell in the dirt um, and it took root and sunlight and water uh, allowed it to grow through its various stages uh, it's eventually reached maturity. It's the time of the year when its leaves are a certain color, and so on and so forth. But that answers the question, why is it here in one sense? Whereas you could say, because the gardener planted it, is answering the question in another sense. And so I think that <clears throat> there's a way in which one thing that I've been playing around with in conversation with a couple of folks in private recently is the idea of science versus scientism or scientific versus scientism. Uh, scientific being the study of natural sciences and, and things around us, geology, biology, so on and so forth. Scientism rather seems to be this idea that science uh, can uh, eventually explain everything. Uh, that's obviously a secular idea. Exactly. Yeah, that's sort of what you're talking about, right? Without a doubt. Uh, I think that uh, more and more uh, people are coming to make this mistake that uh, science can give all of the answers, which is failing to recognize that the purpose of science is really to tell us about the natural world, about, about material phenomena that are external to us. And science can't really tell us what has meaning in life. Uh, science can't necessarily tell us uh, what is right and wrong, uh, what is moral to do. Uh, that's that's more in the purview of, of philosophy and and for people who are predisposed toward it, religion and theology. Right. And now and, I want to uh, interject here real quick um, to say, if you don't mind, um, and if you do mind, we'll sure, we'll, we'll delete this entirely. Um, but just to say that you expressed to me earlier that you're not a religious person. That's right, uh, and and uh, I'm not I'm not specifically religious. I was raised Catholic, and uh, I retain some of that you know c cultural Catholicism. Uh, mm -hmm. As some of my friends and I joked in college, once a Catholic, always a Catholic. You you can never really <laughs> fully rid yourself of it, but. Uh, <laughs> But you know, notwithstanding that, uh, I, I'm I'm more agnostic now. I'm sort of mm -hmm. vaguely spiritual, and uh, I just I think that there's a kind of a, an arbitrary dividing line that that has grown between the worlds of faith and and the secular world, and I don't see that as as being a necessary one. Mm -hmm. I I don't think that uh, that people are so far removed as they may think. Uh, I've 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 spoken to friends recently about the idea that. Whatever you may believe about the nature of the external world, almost all of us share certain values that we assign to that world in the sense that, yes, okay, we can probably all agree that the world has a, has a certain physical basis and there are certain fundamental universal forces. But 
we also then tend to step beyond that. We step beyond the, the specific mandates of science and say, okay, well, these are things that we value. We value human life and we value treating one another well. And, and you know, we may disagree on the particulars of that, mm -hmm. but most decent human beings, religious or not, put value on life and human experience because we are human. And I, I think that that's often lost. We, we have this kind of a, a tendency to to demonize one side or the other, people who are secular or people who are not. And uh, I think it's unfortunate, especially in discussions like this, where uh, you have to get down to the fact that whether you uh, agree with it or not personally, uh, when, these, when these basic ideas, these myths that we're discussing were formed, people did believe in them. And even to this day, people respond to them, mm -hmm. you know, whether they, whether they realize it or not, these symbols are powerful for a reason. They, they, they trigger something in us on a very fundamental level as human beings. Yeah. Very fitly spoken. Um, like I mentioned earlier in our discussion prior to recording, um, we share differences in that. I, I don't like to say I consider myself a religious person because religion carries a lot of sort of the, you know, denominational and creedal and uh, liturgical um, sort of baggage to it um, that you have to say you believe in these one, two, three things, uh, rule sets and, and the way things are done and so on and so forth. But I have religious and theological beliefs. Um, but the reason why I bring that up is because I think that's important to the discussion, given everything that we've just talked about, that we see eye to eye in terms of um, limitations to science um, because like you mentioned there's a tendency in our culture to demonize people on the other side or demonize people that fit into a certain group um, and yet here you have you and I agreeing on this subject but I I like to call it uh, groupthink where you associate an individual uh, with a certain group and then it becomes easier to dismiss the individual's perspectives because you've already aligned them with the group's perspective and the group's perspective is easily dismissed with um, because culture does that uh, depending on you know, exactly. your individual groups. Yeah. So um, I don't think that's necessary. I don't think that that's what we need to be doing as a culture. I think we need to be having more discussions with each other about these subjects. Um, even though you and I have di have varying beliefs, there are things that we can agree on, things that we can't agree on. But I think that having the conversation is much more important than, say, me saying, oh, you're an agnostic, that means I can't talk to you. Yes, and I think that it's about mutual respect, too. Uh, I think that and and this is just strictly speaking as someone who who has had a lot of friends who are are, are more you, you know in line with with strictly atheistic tendencies and i've noticed uh a kind of a tendency to to minimize uh uh theist on an intellectual level among such people and i think there's a, a fundamental lack of awareness there and that first of all religious belief or lack thereof is not a matter of intellect it's not an intellectual error to believe that there is a creator or that there isn't one or whatever. Uh, it, it's, it's more a matter, a matter of personal orientation. It's the way that, that we all happen to see the world. And, uh, you know, I, I can, I can speak to you and, and know full well that you have a, a somewhat different theological view in the particulars, but I can understand 
I think relatively well how you came to that view. I would imagine after talking to you about it, if I talked to you about it in any depth, and uh, and I would have respect for it because I've read scripture, I've studied you know various forms of, of ancient texts and 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 you know the the, the sacred texts, and uh, and I, I recognize that they have an incredible richness. There's a lot that they can tell us about ourselves as human beings and about the nature of the world, and uh, I, I don't I don't see you know any issue with that. Uh, I've I've very rarely uh, met someone with whom I can't have a, a mutually respectful intellectual discussion. So mm. uh, I think I think it's a, a lost art in the world today, and I think it's a real shame. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it it definitely needs to be had more often. We are way off Final Fantasy One, but you know what? <laughs> in a way, <laughs> it ties back into Final Fantasy One because it. Here's how I'm going to attempt to tie it back into Final Fantasy One. Um, Everything is about uh, uh, fandom in in the world. Uh, everything, uh, your family, uh, your political allegiances, your national allegiances, your favorite sports, uh, your favorite brands, your f the, your favorite uh, games. Even uh, one thing we were talking to some folks about recently. And this is a discussion I've had over and over in the past three years. Uh, when you critic, it's especially important because I portray myself as a video game critic, um, not a reviewer, because I think there's a slight difference. But when you criticize a game, uh, that doesn't just mean that you're tearing it down, uh, nor that it does it just mean that you're you know applauding it to the high heavens, uh, but you're sort of looking at its merits and flaws as as fairly as you can. Um, but for some folks, uh, criticizing a game that's a favorite of theirs is something that's um, not to be stomached. And I think that's because we can slip easily as individuals into associating ourselves so closely with these fandoms that that becomes our identity. And so your fandom might be, I'm a Final Fantasy fan. Uh, and that becomes your identity to such an extent that if somebody are, is to say something like Final Fantasy One is a garbage heap, <laughs> that, that inspires a kind of emotional reaction in you. It's almost like somebody insulted you or your family, right? So right. what I think then needs to happen, and there's the analogy, right, is that you and I can have discussions, even though we agree and disagree on various different things about, you know, theology, ancient texts, mythology, so on and so forth, uh, just as we should be able to have discussions about games uh, freely and without uh, any worry about being personally insulted. Um, this is your favorite game. Chrono Trigger is my favorite game. But we should be able to discuss those things uh, with a critical eye without having to worry about insulting the other person um, through that criticism. Now, obviously, deliberately insulting a person is still deliberately insulting a person, but uh, I don't think that's equivocal to, to criticizing the game itself. Um, so I had a couple other things mentioned here going back to the story. Um, you know, one thing that we mentioned here briefly is that um, science has now told us uh, more about what this substance is that we partake in, this reality. Um, so we don't believe in the same um, ideas that the ancient world did about four elements. 
um, and the patterns of four and so on and so forth, uh, fire, air, earth, and water. Um, but that's a that's one thing that crops up in Final Fantasy one that's sort of borrowed from the ancient world. I thought it was interesting though that um, looking at that briefly, um, you do see the fire, air, water, earth pop up a lot. Um, but the Aristotelian model uh, added um, either or either to it, which he surmised because you couldn't observe the uh, celestial bodies um, changing. Um, he supposed that they must be made of a fifth material that was incorruptible. Um, so I was thinking about Final Fantasy, and I was like, well, what is the fifth element? Because you've got the the movie, the fifth element. What, you've got the four elements here. Is the fifth element time? I think there's, there, there could be a good argument made for that, um, and, and it could be... Uh, that argument could be supported by, you know, developments in the later series where uh, you have things like time mages and time magic, and and time becomes more of an integral plot device in in, in games like Eight. Uh, yeah, I, I think that uh, it gets it gets to this issue with one that, uh, as you said, uh, we we no longer have in the modern world that classical understanding of the elements, but we we still respond to depictions of the elements in that primitive way. We like the, the elemental idea of fire, air, water, and earth. And I think that's a big part of the reason why people responded to Final Fantasy, that uh, you have these kind of uh, primitive, fun depictions of these things. And you have you have the fiends of the elements, which I love, by the way, some of the best antagonists in video game history. <laughs> I love them in, in 1 and 4. Uh, and, you know, of course, I love that they came back in 9. Yeah, yeah. But... Uh, yeah, you know, no, for sure. Uh, I, I think that like you have, so you have these these simple, uh, you know, primitive elements, but you start to have in the very beginning of the series uh, that contention with with science, you know, with science fiction. Uh, we don't just have fire, air, water, and earth, as you as you say, you know, making a very good point. You also have that grappling with time and what you know, how do we how do we deal with time? And uh, in the end. Time is actually arguably the most central element in the plot of Final Fantasy One, which is a fairly intriguing thing, considering that you know it's ostensibly about the more classical elements mm. in the beginning mm -hmm. of the game. And there's no time orb or time crystal, um, but it it seems to be a, a as you say an important element within the game. Uh, so on the gameplay. Uh, we spent quite a while on story, but we want to talk a little bit about the gameplay. Uh, what are I want to ask you? What are some of the unique elements uh, in Final Fantasy One in terms of gameplay? One of the things that that makes it compelling to me, you know, even to this day, is that it's very unforgiving. And you know, Lord knows that all of you who out there who, who have played through it and suffered through the ice cave are very well aware of this. Uh, but it's a it's a pretty brutal game, and what I mean by that is that it's not it's not necessarily brutal just for the sake of being brutal. But you have things like the lack of an auto aim. You you have to actually think about where your character is aiming when you when you mm -hmm. you know input an attack. Uh, yeah, so it, it kind of uh, it, it it negates the whole kind of uh, button mashing, you know, holding a element of of later games, and uh, you have things like. Uh, the relative permanence of death, where when a character dies, you don't get the easy access to a phoenix down, 
uh, there's not some you know magical life potion that restores you. You you got to trek it back to the the cleric or, or you know back at the at the at the town. And uh, even though that idea was sort of uh, censored a little bit in the American version, uh, but you know uh, you either have to have access to the cleric or a white a wizard to to do the life spell. Mm-hmm. So uh, the game's you know pretty unforgiving, and that to me makes it feel more more compelling because there's real danger. Uh, I like that. It's fully turn-based, uh, unlike the series became with four. I, I love the active time battle, but I like being able to kind of sit back and relax a little bit. Um, I liked it in FF1. You know, if you're sitting around with friends, you can you can stop before a battle starts and, and during a battle and just sort of goof around and chat. Uh, I, I like that that uh, you, you've you've made the good point here. I see in the notes that uh, this is one of the first times that JRPGs introduced elemental weaknesses. And mm-hmm. I, I love this. Uh, I like that you point this out because uh, I had just read this myself recently and didn't realize this. Uh, but I think it's a really fun, it's, it's a simultaneous uh, kind of a, a storyline and gameplay nod that uh, you, you, by introducing a mechanic like this, you, uh, you do something that's fun for players. It gives them something to kind of memorize and, okay, look, I got to go look this up and figure out what enemy is weak to what, right? But it, it kind of makes sense. It starts to give, it starts to give a kind of a richness to the game. If if water enemies are weak to lightning, that 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 sort of makes sense intuitively, and mm-hmm. uh, it just it adds flavor. You know, it's it's mechanically it's just like a, it's basically rock paper scissors, but it, it feels nice because yeah. it, it it gives character to the game. Yeah, and it's something that I don't even have to explain. So my my four year old son uh, starting to get into a little bit of video games. Uh, He'll play uh, Pokemon Go on my phone, and uh, every once in a while, I'm while I'm driving, I'm like, "Hey, dude, I can get somebody to catch Pokemon while I'm driving." So I give him my phone in the back seat. You know, he's in his car seat, and he's 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 you know plowing away catching some Pokemon. And then uh, I'm like, "Hey, Cal, how you doing over there?" He's like, "Oh, fine. I'm just fighting Team Rocket." I'm like, "Wait, wait, wait. Let me see that." <laughs> and so I look at the phone, and he straight up just defeated Team Rocket. Uh, and he was like, yeah, I used the fire on this, uh, like, you know, grass character. I, he didn't say grass. I think, I think he said leaf or forest character. Um, but he already had an intuitive sense of like fire, uh, does damage to, to grass, to leaf, uh, attribute enemies. Um, so I, I think, yeah, definitely what you're saying. It's a very intuitive thing to have elemental weaknesses. Absolutely. I mean, it, uh, it it gives a lot of you know, just kind of fun surface level, you know, richness to the game. And uh, I, I was just I was astounded to read that that it wasn't present before in JRPGs. I, mean, I knew that the, the genre was was pretty young at that point, but it's a it's a pretty neat thing to, to read that. Yeah. Another cool thing was the uh, sideways battles. Um, a lot of it was a uh, first person perspective in RPGs at the time. And uh, Final Fantasy did this thing where, you know, you've got your heroes on the right side in kind of this, you know, window. And then you've got the enemies on the on the left side. And you get to see the whole battle sort of from the sidelines, from the from the flanks. Uh, it's now an iconic, you know, uh, RPG perspective. Um, but I believe it originated with Final Fantasy one. I. I think it, it most certainly had to have, at least in a popular sense, it must have popularized it. And it's a it's a really good point that you bring up here because that, that simple decision does a few things. It, 
it uh, humanizes our characters, mm-hmm. even though they're blank slates. We actually see them. We get to see what they look like. Uh, you know, we start to develop, a, you know, a, a kind of an understanding of, of, you know, how they appear. And it, look, and let's face it, the the game wouldn't have done as well if we didn't have all the cool, you know, character sprite work. I mean, as, as simple as it was, the the black mage and the red mage, as we've already said, have become very iconic. Mm-hmm. And the the decision to d- depict uh, enemies from that different perspective, I think was made for some really beautiful design choices too, because when you go back to things like swords and serpents, um, you know, the, the sort of early NES era RPGs that are first person perspective, you have a very boring view of the enemies. If, if, if something's looking directly at you, I mean, you know, it, it, I'm not saying that it can't be done well, but it, it gets old right. pretty quickly. And when you're depicting it from the side, you have a little bit more, you know, wiggle room in terms of the nuances you can convey. And I, I absolutely love the sprite work in this game. I think it's very underrated. Uh, I actually like the fact that the sprites aren't animated because it allowed them to focus more on, on, you know, giving them greater detail. And uh, even though a lot of the sprites were reused, I think even some of the most basic models like the imps and the ogres and things like that are, are pretty beautifully done for an 8-bit game. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're a big part of what drew me in as a kid. Yeah, and there's a sense in which uh, seeing them kind of pitted against each other at opposite ends of the screen creates that sense of conflict. So it's not like they're just looking at you. Uh, you could see them looking at uh, their opponents, looking at each other. And absolutely too, like you're saying, uh, it creates uh, affinity with the player to be able to see the black mage, to be able to see the red mage, the white mage, the fighter every single time. But uh, one of the most interesting things about this game to me is the job classes. Um, I love the job class system every time it pops up in a Final Fantasy game. Uh, one of my favorite Final Fantasies is Tactics, and I love that game for the job system in it. So much depth. So many interesting uh, classes. But in this one, there's six classes and you can only have four characters. And I, I always kind of get a little paralyzed at the beginning on which ones to choose. It's tough, man. I mean, uh, they're, they're all fun. Uh, and, and what's neat is that uh, I see this even in the randomizer community. Like uh, the, the, the black belt, for example, is, is probably from a logical standpoint, not the, the, the best choice, uh, you know, for, for the kind of damage dealer, but people just like him. They like that when you get him to a certain, uh, level, he can, he can one shot things. He's got this incredible damage output and it's, yeah, it's a little bit impractical, but it, it's fun as all get out. I mean, you know, and so, uh, people do sort of play favorites. They have favorites, uh, whether they develop them, you know, as kids or, or coming to the game now. And, uh, you know, considering the limitations, considering that there are only six beginning classes and, and then they're, they're, you know, uh, class changed forms and, uh, and that you only have four characters. It's, uh, it, it really provides for kind of endless replay value because as I've said, I've, I've replayed the game countless times. And most of the time I don't choose the same party. I, I've, in fact, in recent years, I can't remember choosing the same party. Mm-hmm. And that element of replay value is definitely unique for, in RPG too, because typically you get the same characters, you finish the story, and then it's done. You know, maybe there's a new game plus, but in this one, it kind of changes up uh, how you need to play it each time, depending on which ones you choose. Another interesting gameplay um, element 
has to do with the bugs, and I said we would bring it up at a certain point. <laughs> uh, we'll lead it with a question here from Retro Gaming Dev. Did everyone know the first time that they played that so many of the item effects and magic spells were broken or non-functioning? I certainly didn't know as a kid. It's a it's a perennial question. You know, of course, a great question. Uh, I would I would venture to say that most people did not. I certainly didn't myself. Uh, I'm with you on that. Uh, I, in fact, you know, I can remember uh, being one of the people who would just argue with with these internet experts until I was blue in the face that, yeah, of course, uh, you know, temper and fast stack. Of course, if you keep casting fast on your, your you know, character, he'll do more damage or, you know, temper will make them do more damage because I, I really believed it. I mean, I, I would sit there and just waste turns in, in the battle against chaos casting temper on my fighter and I really thought it was doing something and it was only until years later that I discovered that no... In fact, you know, along with lock, sleep, you know, and temper and a number of other spells and mechanics, the run mechanic being foremost among them, a lot of stuff in this game, the intelligence stat just simply didn't work at all or didn't work anywhere nearly the way they were intended. Like the the sleep spell works, but it's bugged so that the, the enemies will only sleep one round and they can't ever sleep more than that. So it's hmm. fairly useless. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, it's, you know, it's uh, it's one of those things about the game. I think it's kind of charming. It's kind of funny because you know, you you have to look at the time period. It's a product of its time. Mm-hmm. They probably didn't have a lot of time to play test it, but it's it's definitely in there. A lot of the stuff just doesn't work. Mm-hmm. And it sort of brings up the question of versions, right? Because this game's been re-released. They they had opportunities to test it some more and to and to play through it again. So we got a couple questions about uh. Uh, versions and re-releases here. This is from AVXY Reviews. I've only played the original NES version. What is the best? What is the best version and why? This is from SMB Flurry. Final Fantasy has been re-released many times. Have you played any of the ports? And if so, what are your thoughts on the various releases? Uh, I love these as well. Um, now I'm gonna be, you know, uh, Clint Eastwood on my porch, you know, uh, beating my cane here again in a minute. I'm a more advanced elderly version of Clint Eastwood and say, uh, I do prefer the original. Uh, it could be, you know, rose tinted glasses, but, uh, I grew up with it. One thing that I will say about it that I do like in comparison to the later versions is that, uh, the original has the dark palette that I think only the MSX version sort of mm-hmm. retains. Uh, they're somewhat different in their colors, but the NES version is, uh, the one that has this very dark field, uh, as you pointed out with the, the battle screen, it's, it's jet black. Uh, it's kind of uh, unusual in the series in that way. And the game has a kind of a muted palette. There are a lot of grays and there's, you know, there are these kind of stone castles and, and deserts and things like this. It, it's not nearly as bright as some of the later entries in the series, especially, mm-hmm. uh, the, the SNES stuff. And, uh, you also have the issue of the way that magic works. I love that in the NES version, uh, and of course the Famicom version, that uh, spells work in a tiered system and and you have numerical charges that are allotted with each level. Uh, you you typically don't have this in, in the remakes uh, from my understanding. I've only played Dawn of Souls in all honesty. Okay. Uh, it, it's the only, yeah, it's the only, uh, you know, re-release that I've played uh, I liked Dawn of Souls uh, fairly well. I, I, I love what they did with the music. I will say that. Uh, I think some of the remixes are, are absolutely beautiful, the, the, the way that they're mm-hmm. arranged in that game. But I don't like 
that they made the game closer to FF4 and 6 and and, and 5, of course, uh, in appearance, making it brighter, making it more 16-bit in appearance because I I like the... I like the simple sprite work from the original, and I like that darker tone. Mm-hmm. Uh, but certainly, they fixed a lot of the bugs. Uh, the The classes were much more balanced. Uh, the mages, you know, the intelligence stat w- was uh, fixed, and so the mages become much more useful. Uh, and the knight, or, you know, the fighter isn't nearly as broken. So uh, mm-hmm. I definitely appreciate that they they took the time to to fix some of the the obvious bugs. But uh, you know. I'm I'm uh, an old codger, you know, sitting around with my <laughs> NES, so I like the original uh, ultimately. Yeah, and the the minimalism of the original, uh, in terms of its visuals, is kind of uh, a lovely, uh, unique thing. I, the version that I'm familiar with playing is the PS1 version off of Final Fantasy Origins, where it came with one and two, um, and yeah, it's definitely the a 16-bit vibe and not an 8-bit one. Um, but there's something I think that's especially lovely about the 8-bit version. Um, one version mentioned here that uh, apparently neither... Well, well, you said Dawn of Souls. What is that on? Uh, that was the Game Boy Advance uh, release. Uh, and okay. I, it, it was similar in that it was packaged with FF2, yeah. Yeah, I got you. Okay, so uh, this is from Kaiser Sozak 9 Final Fantasy IV was my first, which I played when I was quite young, so I didn't fully understand it, but it struck a chord with me. It is one of my favorite franchises of all time, and it is amazing how far the series has come since this groundbreaking first game. I was too young to play the original on NES, but I did recently finish the PSP version, which is a very good port of the game, which as far as I know does fix a lot of the issues of the original. I would definitely recommend it to anyone who wants to experience Final Fantasy 1. So uh, we'll definitely take his word for it. I, neither of us have played the PSP version. Um, but I imagine it's quite good. So uh, we'll get into a few final comments and questions here from the audience. As mentioned, we got a lot. Uh, thank you for bearing with us on this uh, longer episode, Jordan. I appreciate it. Absolutely, man. It's been fun. <laughs> I w- yeah. I wouldn't have blamed you if you hung up mid midway because, like I explained to somebody, I have a butt gauge, and if my butt starts hurting, then the episode's over. Uh, <laughs> <sitting> <laughs> that's a good long. one to use man yeah so i can tell movies are too long too it's like okay but uh but um it's been a great discussion and i've really enjoyed it so thank you um we're just going to cover a few qu- final questions here this is from the deviant why do you think this series has had the reverence usually reserved for classic crpgs of the time i.e ultima wizardry TSR D&D releases, etc. I think that uh, in some ways the answer is fairly obvious. I think that uh, Final Fantasy took what these series were about and gave it a uniquely Japanese perspective and introduced, you know, f- fairly identifiable features like, you know, chocobos mm-hmm. and and materia and the crystals and things like this. Uh, they 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 took some motifs. We talked about, you know, light motifs earlier. They took uh, easily recognizable motifs and ideas and and really ran with it. They presented it in an attractive way. And uh, they also created a series that doesn't rely on a strict continuity. Uh, it has a, a kind of a, a general concept that we all instantly recognize, largely, I think, because of the beautiful Amano artwork and the Uematsu music. Mm-hmm. And 
so they, they, they put all these, these generally recognizable features into this game that you can pretty easily dip into. You don't, you don't have to know the deeper lore. You don't have to know, you don't have to have played one to appreciate four. Mm. You don't have to have played six to appreciate seven in, in any you know, major way. Uh, the, the games, you know, are, are independently enjoyable in their own right. And, uh, I think they did a beautiful job with it. I know that the series has a lot of naysayers, but uh, I think that there's a reason that Final Fantasy ultimately succeeded more than Ultima and Wizardry in games like this. And it's it's not to criticize you know more Western RPGs because I wouldn't. I think that Ultima is phenomenal, mm-hmm. but I think that Final Fantasy is more universal. I really do. Yeah, I think what you're touching on uh, as far as the icons of Final Fantasy is really interesting. And I asked myself just now, uh, what icons can I think of from Ultima or Wizardry? Uh, yet for Final Fantasy, even from the first game, you can think of Black Mage, Red Mage, White Mage, you know, and all these, they're the crystals. And then it just goes on and on. You have Moogles and Tonberries and Chocobos, and it builds up this kind of heritage of, of iconography that I think makes it stand out and makes it endearing, you know? Uh, here's a question from Winstolf. If not already asked, can you see the seeds of what the series would become from this humble NES seed? Uh, I think we kind of touched on that, um, in that there's a lot of the origins of Final Fantasy, as makes sense in this first entry. Um, so here's a question from Overthinkery1. Something I've often wondered is how RPGs, especially JRPGs and turn-based, would look these days if the first Final Fantasy had in fact been the final one and there had never been any more Final Fantasy games. Would another dev have carried the torch and made the same innovations? Would we have a bunch of different tropes become more mainstream because different series had become the trope codifier instead? Questions like that are difficult to answer, but certainly the landscape would have changed immensely. Uh, It's hard to imagine an RPG world without Final Fantasy. Uh, I, I think that it's very possible that the JRPG might not have become nearly as prevalent or dominant. The, the Western RPG may have continued to prevail. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's hard to tell. Uh, Dragon Quest might have been more popular, maybe. Pfft, who knows? It kind of seems like one that's close to this. Uh, let's see how many more of these we can sneak in. This is from Three Wojis. Is there one particular feature that has been included in the Final Fantasy games in recent years that you like? I know I really love seeing the fast-forward feature in Zodiac. It sounds like a great idea. Unfortunately, I've only played it up till 10. Uh, mm, I liked liked, uh, the elements of quick travel in 10. I like being able to get to different parts of the world more Mm -hmm. quickly. Some of the more advanced uh, kind of uh, character development maps, like the Sphere Grid in 10, I think are really interesting. You know, so you can kind of uh, visually see in this very interesting UI uh, what's going on there. So, uh, I'm sorry, Jordan. Uh, I feel like a time mage because suddenly we're out of time. But fret not, listeners. We're going to answer remaining audience questions on Twitter on launch day of this episode. So we'll get to every question, even those we didn't have quite the space for on this recording. And again, that's on Twitter, at the well-read mage. But Jordan, thank you for unpacking this delightful conversation with me. Where can our listeners find you? So yeah, I'm on YouTube doing mainly readings of ancient literature with the channel name of Ancient Literature Dude, youtube.com slash ancient literature dude. I'm also on Twitter at ancient lit dude. 
and I'm hoping to, at some point fairly soon, uh, be doing a podcast with my girlfriend, Leaf Not Chris, whom I love very much, by the way. Love you, baby. Uh, and it's going to be a Breath of Fire-centered podcast. I think that uh, the world has long awaited and needed one. And I'm hoping that we're going to call it Dragon Tears, because that's what all of the fans of the series are crying, because Capcom isn't doing anything with the series. But uh, yeah, man, in any event, uh, I just wanted to say thank you so much for having me on. Uh, it's been a real blast, and I love what you do. Uh, really glad to have this kind of in-depth you know, video game analysis going on out there. So uh, thanks again, man. Yeah, thank you. It's been my pleasure. Well, that's it for MageCast. The spell is wearing off. But stick around for a promo about another show I'd know you'd just love. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. If you liked it, Please like, subscribe, and share this episode to help us reach a wider audience. If you enjoy our work, please consider supporting us and our vision for the future of civil gaming conversations with a monthly pledge of any amount at patreon.com forward slash the well-read mage. This episode may be over, but the legend will live on, passed down by the dwarves, the elves, and the dragons. My name is Katie Cakes, and I am the host of Cake Bites, a podcast adventure through gaming history. I am just inviting you to come along with me on that journey while I interview people who have worked in and around the industry for the last 30 plus years to learn about their experiences and their perspectives to learn more about an industry that is continuously evolving. I hope you guys will join me every two weeks when I release a new episode of the show on all major podcasting platforms. You can learn more about the show at kickbites.com.